Heredity can be a problem. I got this double chin from my dad. I got my insanity from my teenagers. And I got a rebellious, stubborn, sinful nature from my grandpa Adam. And so did you. The old saying is true. One bad apple can spoil the whole bunch. Adam ate a bad apple. He became a bad apple. And he filled a whole family tree full of bad apples. And we see here in chapter 4 an example of the truth. The apple never falls far from the tree. For Adam's own offspring demonstrate the awful destructive effects of his own sin. Which reminds me of a question. What did Adam and Eve do when they were expelled from Eden? Anybody know? Hey, they raised Cain. And that's what mankind has been doing ever since. Chapter 4 opens. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain and said, I have acquired a man from the Lord. One translation of Eve's statement reads, I have gotten a man, even Jehovah. You remember at the end of chapter 3, God promised that the Messiah would come through the woman, the seed of the woman. And it's possible that Eve thought that her first son, Cain, was the fulfillment of that promise. That is, until she got him home from the hospital. (laughs) Because when she got that baby home, her illusions were shattered. Cain was a pain. Eve's baby, like all babies, was self-willed. He threw temper tantrums. He was a deceiver. He got jealous. He pouted. Eve realized that Cain came into the world just as self-centered as she and Adam had become. Cain wasn't a savior. Cain was a brat. And slowly, Eve became painfully aware of the implications of her own sin. Not only on her and Adam but on the whole human race. And that's why she ends up naming her second son Abel, which means vanity. There's a church in Minnesota that publishes a newsletter, but the editors don't always catch the bloopers. A recent edition of the newsletter announced, Bible study on Genesis. Were Adam and Eve really naked in the garden? Come and see for yourself. Whoops. Well, it's true. Adam and Eve were really naked in the garden. That is, until they tried to cover up their sin by sewing together fig leaves. They tried to cover their sin with fig leaves, but they figured wrong. You see, man's redemption involves more than just turning over a new leaf. God insists on a sacrifice. The wages of sin is death. And so God, in order to cover their sin, killed an innocent animal and covered Adam and Eve in fur coats. That's why we know that when Cain and Abel come to offer their sacrifices, they already knew the truth of Leviticus 17.11 that says, it is the blood that makes atonement. Abel the shepherd 
sacrificed a lamb that was accepted by God. Farmer Cain presented a horn of plenty, his crops, but that horn of plenty turned out not to be enough, for Cain's sacrifice was rejected. You see, Cain assumed that his own achievement could merit God's blessings, whereas Abel relied upon the blood of a sacrifice. Guys, there's two ways to come to God. You can come to God on your own merit, on your own goodness, on your own self-righteousness, or you can come to God through faith in a sacrifice. And our sacrifice, of course, is Jesus Christ. You know, Cain came on his own terms. Abel came to God on God's terms. Cain figured that his fruit basket would be enough. But it doesn't matter how you figure or how you configure. What matters is what God requires and you meeting God's terms. Cain is warned in verse 7, Sin lies at the door and its desire is for you, but you should rule over it. The NIV renders it, Sin is crouching at your door. Sin is like a wild animal stalking its prey. It's up to Cain and it's up to us to overcome sin. Of course, the question is how? How do I overcome sin? And the answer is simple. Surrender to Jesus and rely on His power. I've heard it said, the only way we can master sin is to be mastered by the one who has already mastered it, our Lord Jesus Christ. Cain, though, loses the battle, and in a jealous rage, he kills his brother. And in verse 9, the Lord says to Cain, Where is Abel, your brother? And he said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And of course, the right answer for Cain and for us is yes. We are our brother's keeper. No man is an island. God expects you and me to care for the people around us. Hear what happens to Cain. Verse 12 tells us that God, in essence, cuts off his green thumb. In other words, he loses his ability to farm. It forces him to move to the city and go into business. Cain becomes a vagabond, a wanderer. And everywhere he travels, people want to hurt him. Remember, at the time, everyone on earth was the victim's relative, <laughs> which made it kind of rough on Cain. There was nowhere he could escape. In fact, God offers Cain some protection in verse 15. And the Lord said to him, Therefore, whoever kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord set a mark on Cain, lest anyone finding him should kill him. Now, throughout our study of the Old Testament, whenever I get an opportunity, I'm going to point out Jesus Christ. In Hebrews chapter 10, verse 7, Jesus says, In the volume of the book, it is written of me. In other words, if you look closely, you can find Jesus on every page of this book. Here's a good example. Abel is a shepherd. He offered a lamb accepted by God. He was hated without a cause, killed by his brother. He died violently. And his blood cries out from the ground. Who does that sound like? But Jesus Christ. And if Abel is a type of Jesus, who do you think Cain typifies? How about the Jews? Think about it. 
They tried to muster their own righteousness, but were rejected by God. They became jealous of their brother Jesus and killed him. They were made fugitives on the earth. And everywhere they've been for the last 2,000 years, they've been hated by the people around them. And what about this sevenfold vengeance on the enemies of the Jews? What about the seven years of great tribulation that's going to come upon their enemies? And during that time, guess who gets a mark? Just like Cain, 144,000 Jews receive a protective mark on their forehead. Some amazing parallels. Amazing stories here in the Old Testament. And before we leave the subject of Cain, one more question. Where did Cain get his wife? I don't know why this causes so much distress. To me, it's pretty obvious. Cain must have married a sister. According to the tradition, Adam and Eve had 33 sons and 27 daughters. Well, you think about it, they lived to be 960 years old. They were created perfect human beings. You know, they had no reproductive problems. I mean, they were into baby making. If you started with 27 couples and each of them had six kids, within 100 years, you'd have a population of 40,000 people. Do the math. I did it. Do the math. Cain had plenty of women from which to choose. It seems that marriage between brothers and sisters, according to the Bible, is not necessarily intrinsically evil. It was prohibited in the law of Moses out of necessity. You see, by that time, the human gene pool had been polluted. It had been weakened. And it was for health reasons that God prohibited the practice. But in the beginning, it seems that the descendants of Adam and Eve were free to intermarry. Chapters 4 through 6 here is a valuable section for us because it's one of the few passages in Scripture that gives us a picture of the antediluvian world, a long name for the pre-flood world, the world before Noah's flood. And for the next chapter and a half or so, Genesis tracks the development of two antediluvian families, the family of Cain, which was a rebellious bunch, and the family of Seth, Adam's other son, a faithful bunch. The most notable among the Cainites is found in verse 19, a man by the name of Lamech. And Lamech has the dubious distinction of being the originator of polygamy. One wife wasn't enough for Lamech. He married Ada, and then later he married Zillah. And, of course, Lamech's punishment was inherent. That meant he had two mother-in-laws. Man, what a tough punishment. Hey, I'm sort of joking, but Lamech's sin was serious. He was the first person to tamper with God's rules concerning sex and marriage. The word Lamech means wild man, and he must have been just that. Lamech had my three sons. Their names were Jabel, Jubal, and Tubal-Cain. And all three names not only rhyme, but they also come from the same root word, which means to produce or to invent. You see, Lamech's sons symbolized the technological advancements that occurred before the flood. 
Jabel was the father of the cattle ranchers, the first cowboy. You thought John Wayne was. It was Jabel. Jubal was the father of all musicians. And Tubal Cain, the father of all metal workers. Evolutionary propaganda assumes that the ancients were primitive people. And gradually they advanced in their knowledge and know-how, but not so. All over the world, in the historical records, there are ancient accounts of advanced civilizations lost in a global flood. The ancient legend of Atlantis is a good example. I believe the antediluvian world featured a highly sophisticated society that might even rival modern society today, the pyramids of Egypt. England's Stonehenge are examples of the technology that existed in the pre-flood world. We know that Adam had a brilliant intellect. He was able to name all of the animals apparently in a single day. I'm sure that even after the fall, he still could do quite well on the SAT. And it's probable that his immediate descendants were also very, very smart. The antediluvians were advanced technologically, but they were corrupt morally, and they were defiant spiritually. Listen to Lamech's boast in verse 23. For I have killed a man for wounding me, even a young man for hurting me. If Cain shall be avenged sevenfold, then Lamech seventy-sevenfold. Now here's what he's saying. Remember what God said about those that harmed Cain, that they would be cursed sevenfold. Here's what he's saying. God might avenge sevenfold, but you mess with me and I'll avenge seventy-sevenfold. In other words, I'm tougher than God. How defiant. How arrogant. Understanding the antediluvian world and its climate is important to us. For Jesus says in Luke 17 verse 26, As in the days of Noah, so it will be also in the days of the Son of Man. In other words, the climate that existed before the flood is going to be similar to that which exists before the second coming of Christ. Jesus will return at a time characterized by tremendous technological advancement coupled with an extreme arrogance and defiance against God. Can you think of a time that fits that scenario? Hey, today could be the day. In chapter 5, we shift to the family of Seth. Ten names appear in the genealogy. Adam, Seth, Enosh, Canaan, Mahalalel, Jared, Enoch, Methuselah, Lamech, and Noah, another Lamech, and Noah. First, notice the obvious. Each of Adam's kin inherit his sin, and his end. (laughs) After each name, we find the words, and he died. The wages of sin is death. And he died except for one individual, a man by the name of Enoch. Verse 24 tells us, Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. Once a little girl was reciting this story to her mom. And she said, one day Enoch and God took a walk together. They walked and talked and walked and talked until Enoch finally said, 
Lord, it's getting late. I better go home. But the Lord said, Enoch, we've been walking so long together. I believe we're closer to my house than to your house. Why don't you just come home with me tonight? Now, I don't know that that's how it happened, but it could have. I know this. We all should desire a walk with God so intimate that God would read our hearts and conclude that we are closer to heaven than we are to earth. That our hearts are more in tune with our heavenly home than this old earth in which we live. Enoch means dedicated. And he walked so close to God that God decided to do a little rapture practice on Enoch. And he took him. Now Jude, verse 14, tells us that Enoch was a prophet. And Jude tells us what he prophesied. Behold, the Lord comes with 10,000 of his saints to execute judgment on all. Isn't that amazing? Enoch was the seventh generation from Adam, but already he was proclaiming the second coming of Jesus Christ. I find that fascinating. Notice there were three groups of people alive at the time of the flood. The wicked who drowned, Noah who was protected in the midst of the storm in the ark, and Enoch who was taken to heaven prior to the judgment. Now again, note the typology. For the next time that the earth is judged, during the great tribulation, there will also be the same three groups represented. The lost who are going to die in the judgments, the Jews who, like Noah, are going to be protected in the midst of the storm, and who is like Enoch? The church. Those who will go up before the judgment comes down. Enoch was a prophet, but it's also interesting that his son was a prophecy. Methuselah was the oldest man who ever lived. 969 years. When he died. And he became God's prophetic timepiece. His name means, when he dies, it will be sent. And the interesting thing is, is that Methuselah died the very year that the flood came upon the earth. His name had been a prophecy predicting the time that the flood would come. I like this, though, because it speaks of God's patience and God's mercy. Don't miss this point. For when God ties a warning of judgment to a particular lifespan... He chooses the longest span of any man who ever lived. What does that say? That says that God doesn't want to judge anybody. God waits as long as he can. God doesn't relish judgment. He desires that all men repent and be saved. Finally, note here the long ages of these ten men. Excluding Enoch, their average age is 908 years old. Makes 41 doesn't seem so bad. And what's amazing here is that some of these men are still having children at old ages. We're told in verse 32 that Noah sired sons at 500 years old. Hey, it's never too late. Also, they all birthed sons and daughters, multiples. Now, how many kids could you have if you were baby making for 500 years? 
And this is one reason why I believe the earth was as populated before the flood as it is now, maybe even more so. Obviously, though, the question on our minds is how in the world did people live 900 years? Remember in Genesis chapter 1, verse 7, God divided the waters below the sky from the waters above the sky. And some scholars believe that the water above referred to more than just simply the water vapor contained in our atmosphere today. Before the flood, there may have been a dense, highly compacted vapor canopy that existed and shrouded the earth in the upper levels of our atmosphere. The oldest book written, Job, seems to speak of this vapor canopy in chapter 38, verse 9. There God says, When I made the clouds its garment, and thick darkness its swaddling band. The latest theories on aging point to the sun as the culprit. Theoretically, the human body should be able to rejuvenate itself indefinitely. But around the age of 25, for reasons unknown, we begin to die and deteriorate. Some scientists believe that it's the solar radiation, that it sends a false signal to the DNA that triggers the aging process. But if this canopy shrouded and enveloped and shielded the globe from the harmful radiations of the sun, then it could well explain these very old ages. With this vapor canopy, the antediluvian world would have been much different than it is today. It would have been a virtual paradise. Global temperatures would have been constant, around 72 degrees. Storms, even rain, would be non-existent, since hot air would never collide with cold air. The world before the flood would have been a subtropical paradise with lush vegetation from pole to pole. The earth would have been a literal greenhouse. It's interesting that all around the world today, there is great evidence for this idea. We have found fossilized palm trees above the Arctic Circle, some with leaves on them 8 to 12 inches wide. In Siberia, we found frozen mammoths with tropical vegetation still in their mouths. Apparently, they were frozen instantly, possibly a result of the flood. And when we speak of mammoths, this brings up another question. What about the dinosaurs? Where do they fit in? Well, I suppose it's possible that we could put them in the gap that we talked about last week, the gap between Genesis 1-1 and 1-2. But personally, I believe the dinosaurs were among the animals that Noah brought onto the ark. I believe the dinosaurs lived in the antediluvian world and were contemporaries of man. We have found cave drawings of dinosaurs put there by human artists. The Bible, in fact, describes two animals that sound amazingly like dinosaurs in Job chapters 40 and 41. In fact, there are many people who have observed and seen and discovered animals in the world today that other people would consider to be dinosaurs. In 1977, what some people think was a plesiosaur was snagged 900 feet underwater near Christchurch, New Zealand. Every now and then in the remote parts of the world, an animal that people thought was prehistoric is found to still be living. Noah could have carried two of all the infant dinosaurs or even two 
of the dinosaur eggs aboard the ark. Eggs wouldn't have taken up much space. Babies wouldn't have. But later the dinosaurs walked out into the post-flood ecosystem and found it totally incompatible. They were unable to survive. And they quickly became extinct. Chapter 6, verse 1 and 2, describes a perversion that literally destroyed, destroyed the antediluvian world. We're told the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves of all whom they chose. Now, some see this as Seth's lineage intermarrying with the family of Cain. But that interpretation doesn't account for the offspring that's mentioned in verse 4, because there we're told that they produced giants. And the Hebrew word is Nephilim, which means fallen ones. The Hebrew phrase that's translated sons of God is the word phrase Bini Elohim. And it appears four times in the Old Testament, and each time it refers to angels. Jude 6 speaks of angels who did not keep their proper domain. And I believe a perversion of the human race took place in the antediluvian world. That fallen angels materialized in human form and impregnated women, producing a distorted race of mutant humanoids. Last week we saw that when Satan couldn't stop the creation of man, he tried to spoil it. And here he attempts to contaminate the human gene pool, engineer our extinction, literally. And this helps us understand why God had to destroy the earth with water, why he had to completely wipe out everyone but eight people. It was the only way for God to save the human race as we know it today. It's interesting that in every ancient culture there are myths abounding with stories of demigods, beings that were half human and half divine. Greek mythology is full of these kinds of stories. Of course, myths are just myths. But some of the stories could have been inspired by these actual events that are described here in the Scriptures. Notice, too, verse 4 says that, there, that these giants in Noah's day were also afterwards. Later, when the Hebrews go to spy out the land of Canaan, they report seeing giants in the land. And the same word, Nephilim, is used. You remember, too, David's famous opponent. He fought against a giant named Goliath. There's a Hebrew tradition It comes from the extra-biblical book of Enoch, where these fallen angels were identified as the ones who taught humanity the evils of black magic, the science of war and weaponry, and interestingly enough, how to abort human fetuses. It's also interesting that this subject of Genesis chapter 6 is now becoming a favorite Hollywood theme. Recently, in the movie Michael, John Travolta plays a lust-filled angel whose main desire is to hit on beautiful women. 
It's amazing how it's all coming back so close to home. And you read the phrase, as in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the coming of the Son of Man. Guys, this stuff is demonic. In the occult, did you know, the highest possible experience is sexual relations with a demon. The offspring is called a moon child. You've heard that phrase. This is dangerous stuff. And this is talked about by people today. And this was the reason that God destroyed the earth in the days of Noah. No wonder we're told in verse 5, the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth and he was grieved in his heart. Remember, grieve is a love word. You can anger anyone, but you can grieve only a person who deeply cares about you. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. This is the genealogy of Noah. Noah was a just man, perfect in his generations. And the implication there could be that he's saying that his pedigree had not been perverted by the demonic activity going on in the antediluvian world. The idea there, him being perfect in his generations. And we're told Noah walked with God. And Noah becomes the means by which God starts over with man. In verses 14 and 15, God tells Noah to make an ark of gopher wood. And using 18 inches as our cubit, the ark's dimensions would be 450 feet long, 75 feet wide, and 45 feet high. Interestingly, prior to 1858, Noah's Ark was the largest seagoing vessel ever constructed. Prior to 1858. To get an idea of the volume it could hold, its three decks would have provided 100,000 square feet of floor space. To illustrate that capacity, imagine sitting at a railroad crossing, watching a train pass by, and counting 522 livestock cars, each packed with 240 sheep. That's the equivalent of the capacity of the ark. It would have held, if it were carrying nothing but sheep, 125,280 sheep. And its ratio... It had a six-to-one ratio of length to width, which is, by modern-day shipbuilding standards, the perfect proportion to survive rough waters. It would have been impossible for the ark to have capsized. The ark was also constructed with a window at the top, 18 inches high. And many scholars believe the window ran the length of the ark, supplying fresh air, supplying plenty of ventilation. With all those animals, you wouldn't have needed it. It stunk on the ark. And that's why I've heard it said, the church is like Noah's ark. At times it may stink inside, but it still beats the alternative. (laughs) Which also reminds me of the top ten statements uttered by Noah. Number ten. Strange, we haven't seen another boat for weeks. Number nine. If only I'd brought along more rhino litter. Number eight, 
I never want to sleep on a waterbed again. Number seven, fish for supper again? Number six, does anyone have more Dramamine? Number five, what? You don't have film to photograph the rainbow? Number four, honey, please stop saying into each life a little rain must fall. Number three, how can I fish with just two worms? Number two, God, are you sure I don't need to keep the termites in a tin can? (laughs) And the number one thing heard from Noah's mouth as he was exiting the ark, Noah slapped his neck and began to mumble, I should have killed those lousy mosquitoes while I had the chance. Notice in verse 17, God says, I myself am bringing floodwaters on the earth to destroy from under heaven all flesh in which is the breath of life. Everything that is on the earth shall die. Guys, this was not a localized flood. It covered the whole earth. And there is tremendous evidence in the world for a universal flood. Some of the tallest mountain peaks in the world, the Himalayans are a good example are made up of sedimentary rock. Now, when were the Himalayan mountains underwater? We've also found marine fossils on the peaks of some of the world's tallest mountains. How did they get there? Understand a global deluge is the most validated event in antiquity. All cultures from Mexico to Babylon to China have accounts of a great flood, a boat, and a family who survived. And though not identical to the biblical record, these stories are corrupted versions of the historical event reported to us accurately here in Scripture. God judged the entire earth with a flood. Only Noah, his three sons, and their wives survived the flood. Along with two of each kind of animal, male and female, and seven of the clean animals a distinction that later appears in the law of Moses, but interestingly enough, was apparently also known by Noah. And notice how Noah leads the animals into the ark. Sometimes we conceptualize Noah out chasing butterflies with his butterfly net and trying to corral them. But in verse 20, God tells Noah, the animals will come to you. Isn't that interesting? The animals will come to you. And perhaps this was the origination of migratory instincts that are now a part of the nature of many, many species of animals. Chapter 7, verse 1, we find a moving scene. Then the Lord said to Noah, Come into the ark, you and all your household. When it's time to board the ark, God doesn't tell Noah, to go into the ark, does he? God tells Noah to come into the ark, which implies that God is already on board. Isn't that neat? We call it Noah's ark, but God was the captain. He rode in the ark with them. Actually, the ark was not a boat. It was a barge. It had no onboard navigation. Noah couldn't steer it. It was up to God to guide it to a proper resting place. And you know, 
There are often times in our lives when we feel like we have lost the ability to navigate. We feel like we're adrift aimlessly on the water. It's in those times, guys, that we need to remember who's on board. When we feel like a victim, when we feel like we're just tossing on the waves, we need to remember that Jesus is the captain of our ship, that it's up to Him to steer us and guide us until we settle in on dry land. Verses 11 and 12 describe the flood mechanics. The fountains of the great deep were broken up, and the windows of heaven were opened, and the rain was on the earth forty days and forty nights. Some scholars believe that a comet penetrated this vapor canopy, causing it to explode and collapse, pouring out water upon the earth. We're told the windows of heaven were opened, or literally the sluice gates were unleashed. Not simple rain, but gushing water pouring out upon the earth. In addition, the fountain of the deeps were broken up. Volcanic explosions released subterranean springs and oceans. It's possible that the comet caused a tilt in the earth's axis, the continents to shift, the mountains to rise. The whole geology of the earth was altered during the flood. And that's what Peter tells us in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 6, when he says, the world that then existed perished, being flooded with water. When Noah and his family exited that ark, they walked out, guys, into an entirely new environment. It's my opinion that a global flood is a far better explanation for the earth's geology than uniform processes of nature. There is no way that the Grand Canyon and all its varied geological formations was cut out by a little trickle called the Colorado River. I've been there. I've seen that huge gully called the Grand Canyon. And there's no way that little river could have cut it out. It would have taken something as enormous as the flood. I'm sorry, I can't believe the evolutionary assumptions. I'm just not that gullible. The Institute for Creation Research has done some interesting work at Mount St. Helens. They have documented how that many of the geological structures that once were thought to have formed over millions of years occurred instantly in the wake of the eruption back a few years ago. Amazing. And think about the fossils. The earth is a burial ground. Fossils everywhere. And yet what makes a fossil? Natural processes? Of course not. When a fish falls to the ocean floor, it doesn't turn into a fossil. It gets eaten up by a scavenger or it deteriorates. It takes pressure, compaction, and instant burial for a fossil to form. Conditions present in a flood. Even the placement of the fossils in the geological stratus are better explained by the animal's mobility, its density, its initial habitat. You know, they got to where they were in the, in the stratus in their attempt to try to survive the floodwaters before they were engulfed and encased with sediment. I love verse 16 of chapter 7. After Noah entered the ark, we're told, 
the Lord shut him in. Isn't that neat? The Lord himself shut the door behind Noah's family. Sealed it shut. Verse 23 reminds us, Only Noah and those who were with him in the ark remained alive. Understand. Human ingenuity, human effort saved no one. Even the Olympic swimmers drowned in the flood. The ark was God's only place of shelter. And only those who remained in the ark were saved. And guys, Jesus is God's only shelter in the world today. He is the only Savior. And I don't care how good a swimmer you are, you're going to drown unless you seek refuge in Christ Jesus. Let me also point out that the ark is another beautiful type of Jesus Christ. The ark was a trinity, three decks, and yet one boat. God was in the ark, and he was also in Jesus. Both Noah and Jesus were carpenters. And they built judgment-proof means of salvation. When Noah entered the ark, he left behind his old life. And he received an entirely new life. The same occurs for those who enter Christ Jesus. There was only one ark and there's only one Savior. The ark had a single door. And guess where the door was? In the side of the ark. And it was out of that door that Noah came forth to repopulate the earth. And it was from Jesus' side that the life-giving blood came forth to populate heaven. And finally, the ark landed on Mount Ararat in the month of Nisan, the 17th day of the month. Hold on to your hat. The very day of the year that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. The 17th of Nisan. Both dates mark a new beginning for mankind. It's also interesting to me that Noah was in the ark for 371 days, over a year. And about 60% of that time, he spent just sitting on Mount Ararat waiting for the waters to recede. Apparently, Noah had to be patient. He had to learn patience, learn to wait on God. I love the story of the great Puritan pastor, Philip Brooks, who was pacing back and forth in his living room when a friend came to see him. A fellow walked up and he noticed Brooks and how restless he was. And he said to him, he said, Philip, why are you walking back and forth? And Brooks responded, because I am in a hurry and God is not. And isn't that the case with us so many times? We need to learn to rest in God's promises. Allow Him to bring to pass His promises in His time and in His way. Understand, the word Noah means rest. In chapter 8, verse 20, the first act that Noah performs when he steps onto dry ground is recorded for us. Noah built an altar to the Lord and took of every clean animal and of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings. His first act was to make a sacrifice. I'd have had a little cabin fever. Man, I'm going to play golf. But Noah was thankful. Noah was devoted. His first act was to make a sacrifice to God. 
In chapter 9, God makes a covenant with Noah outlining the changes in lifestyle that would be necessary in light of man's new environment. In verses 2 through 4, God adds meat to man's diet. I love this. God blesses the Big Macs and the juicy barbecue. Evidently, post-flood people needed an extra source of protein. But now that the animals were going to be a source of food for man, God puts within the animal nature a hostility toward humans. Apparently, before the flood, it wasn't there. You know, you could walk up to the lion, to the tiger, you know, feed him some sugar cubes. Pet him, play with him out in the grass, no big deal. But in verse 2, we're told that God puts a fear or dread of man in the animals. You see, if God hadn't, then the deer hunters would go out with the sugar cubes in their hand and entice little Bambi out of the bushes and then unload on him with their rifles. Would have been unfair. And so God evens the score. He puts a natural hostility toward man in the nature of the animals. In verse 6, God institutes capital punishment. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God he made man. Scholars see in the covenant that God made with Noah the establishment of human government. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus tells his disciples to turn the other cheek, but he's speaking in the context of personal relationships. Jesus' instructions to his disciples don't change the responsibility that God gave to governments here in Genesis chapter 9. In verses 12 through 16, God hangs up his bow. The Hebrew word translated rainbow means literally bow and arrow. And it was as if God had been firing arrows of judgment upon the wicked world. But now, God hangs up His bow. The flood is over. He promises to never repeat this kind of destruction, not with water at least. And God's agenda from here on out, from here till the end of the age, becomes salvation, no longer condemnation. Verse 18 lists your grandpa. That's right, your grandpa. Because every one of us here in this room tonight came from one of Noah's three sons. Shem, Ham, or Japheth. And in chapter 10, we have their genealogies. It's called the Table of Nations. And it shows the distribution of the people throughout the earth following the flood. It's interesting. If you took... The population trends over the last 100 years and extrapolated them back 4,500 years, it's amazing, but you would end up with a world population right after the flood of eight people, which is exactly what the Bible teaches. After the flood, God started over repopulating the earth around 2500 B.C. with the eight members of Noah's family. It's also interesting that anthropologists agree that humans, all humans, can be grouped in basically three major divisions. Either Caucasian, 
or black or oriental. And as we follow the table of nations, we'll discover that Noah's descendants loosely paralleled those three divisions. Japheth migrated north into Europe and fathered the Caucasian nations. Shem's descendants moved eastward. He originated the Oriental and Semitic peoples. And Ham's family traveled southward. The African nations were fathered by Ham. In chapter 10, verse 8, there's an important parenthesis in the genealogy of Ham. We read, Cush begat Nimrod. He began to be a mighty one on the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said, like Nimrod, the mighty hunter before the Lord, and the beginning of his kingdom was Babel. Nimrod means to rebel. And that's exactly what this fellow did. God hung up his bow and wanted to make peace, but Nimrod took up his bow and became a mighty hunter before the Lord. One interpretation, though, reads, a mighty hunter against the Lord. The idea being that Nimrod went hunting not just for animals, but for souls, for people, to draw them away from God and after himself. No doubt Nimrod was a skilled animal hunter. And think of the prestige that this would have given him in the post-flood world. Men were not used to this hostility between man and beast. And every time there was a rustling in the bushes, you would be afraid that a wild animal would pounce out and tear you to pieces. And so a mighty hunter would be a source of protection. He would be able to make appealing promises and draw men after himself. Tradition says that Nimrod was the first to domesticate horses, the first to bring the animal kingdom under his dominion, and people saw him as a savior. Just a couple of highlights here in the genealogy. Gomer is Germany, Magog the Russians, Yavin the Greeks, Tyrus is Italy, Cush the Ethiopians, Mizraim, the Egyptians, the Sinites, or the Chinese, and Eber was probably short for the Hebrews. And an interesting comment is made of Eber in verse 25. To Eber were born two sons. The name of one was Peleg, for in his days the earth was divided, and it's possible that the continents actually separated after the flood during the days of Peleg quick look at the globe and the outline of the continents will indicate that at one time they all connected and formed one great landmass. But after the flood, they broke up and drifted apart. And this explains how the kangaroos got from the ark to Australia and how the American Indians reached the new world. They were able to travel across these huge land bridges until finally they broke apart in the days of Peleg. Notice, too, in this genealogy, the name of Jobab. We'll get to his story later in the book of Job. Chronologically, chapter 10 comes after chapter 11. Chapter 10 describes how the nations divided. Chapter 11 takes us to Babylon and tells us why they were divided. Remember, in Genesis chapter 9, verse 1, God told Noah and his descendants, Be fruitful and multiply 
and fill the earth. But rather than fill the earth, here in chapter 11, we find the post-flood population gathering together in one place called Babel and as one people. Rather than scattering and multiplying, they're coming together and they're uniting. And it was Nimrod who formed this one world government and led the people in rebellion against God. Guys, in many ways, Nimrod is the first type of that world leader who will come in the last days, who will also construct a one world government. We call him the Antichrist. Nimrod even builds a tower into the heavens. And we know a lot about the Babylonian ziggurats. They were observatories and they were temples. You see, the Babylonians worshipped and consulted the stars. And apparently Nimrod was the culprit who introduced to the world the evils of astrology. God forbid that man would worship or consult the stars. There's one subtlety here. In verse 3, they construct this tower using asphalt for mortar. And the Hebrew word for asphalt refers to a waterproofing material, which causes us to ask, what in the world would you be doing building a waterproof tower out in the middle of the desert? And there's only one way you'd do that, and that is if you were expecting a flood. You see, Nimrod had convinced the people of the world that God was out to get them, that God was at war with them, that God's promise of the rainbow was not true, that God was a liar and that he couldn't be trusted. Nimrod was an antichrist who preached an anti-God message and drew the world after himself. We're told in verse 6, And the Lord said, Indeed, the people are one, and they all have one language, and this is what they begin to do. Now, nothing that they propose to do will be withheld from them. Hey, God is against globalism. God is against one world government, not because it's a bad idea, but because God knows what's in the heart of man. As long as men are together, when one family rebels, there is the potential for them to drag other families down with them. And God wanted to separate the population so that rebellion and apostasy could be minimized and remain localized. When men get together, they dream up bad things to do. And I'm all for globalism. The only one world government I want is the one that Jesus Christ will reign and rule over. To break up man's party, God confuses the languages. Breaking down communication and therefore causing separation. People were forced to gravitate into common language groups and scatter to fill the earth. As God originally planned... In chapter 9, verse 1, when he told them to go out and fill the earth. And the city where all this took place was given the name Babel, which means confusion. And if God hadn't confused the languages at Babel, then the Babylonian system of religion with all of its heretical, occultic, and idolatry practices would have become the norm for all men and doomed humanity. God broke up the party at Babel as an act of mercy. And he began to work 
on a people that would be faithful to Him. Chapter 11 ends with the genealogy of Noah's son Shem. Noah lived 350 years after the flood. Shem lived 50 years after Abraham's son Isaac was born. Which means when people come to you and say, Oh, you can't believe the creation account in the Bible because it was passed down word of mouth from generation to generation to generation. Don't believe them. Because when you look at these genealogies closely, here's what you see. Lamech, Noah's dad, was a contemporary of Adam. He overlapped Adam. He could have gotten the account from Adam. Shem, Noah's son, got it from his grandpa, Lamech. And Isaac's 12 sons, the fathers of the 12 tribes of Israel, got it from Shem. So just three links were necessary to take the story from the first man, Adam, and bring it all the way down to the founders of the nation Israel. And let me make one more point about this genealogy. Notice after the flood how quickly the age spans diminish. Terah, Abraham's dad, lives to be just 205. Abraham lives to be 180, and thereafter the ages become compatible to what they are today. Apparently without this protective canopy around the earth, people began to age much, much faster as they do today. In chapter 11, Satan leads a rebellion by choosing a man named Nimrod, a place called Babel, and a means called fear. But in chapter 12, God is going to begin a work of redemption by choosing a man named Abram, a place called Canaan, and a means known as faith. And that's where we'll pick it up next week. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for speaking to our hearts. We love you, Lord. We thank you for your patience, Lord. We recall the days of Noah and how evil things were. And Lord, we look at our world today and we see that things are getting just as evil. Lord, help us to realize tonight that your coming can't be long. Very soon we could find ourselves in the presence of our Lord Jesus. Help us to be ready. Help us to be vigilant. We love you, Lord Jesus. And help us, Lord, to be a witness. to As many people as we can this week. Who knows if this week could be our last. In Jesus' name we pray. And everyone said... Amen. Let's